We're presently doing a series in Mark and we only have two messages left, which out of about 60 plus has taken us some time. And we come today to one of the most important pieces in the whole gospel. It's the death of Jesus. It's where the gospel has been leaning to the whole time. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this about this text. He says, This subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. It needs Christ himself completely to expound it. Would God then, by his Spirit, expound it to our hearts? You know, it's been the cry by heart all week as I prepared for this message. It's worthy of an angel's tongue. And yet, unfortunately, you just get mine. And so we need the Lord, don't we? We need Jesus to expound it so that we may understand truly what's being said here. And so we're going to read the text to us and then we're going to pray. We're going to read from verse 16 to the end of verse 41. This is God's word. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed. And spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him and they compelled a passerby Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross and they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means place of a skull and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one in his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed 
his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. And Lord, as we stand around Calvary today, we stand on holy ground. And so Lord, would you help me? Would you expound these scriptures today to our hearts? Whether we be a people who love you, or whether we be a people who are disinterested in you. Would you expound this text to all of our hearts? Amaze us. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the books that has always been popular in our household is the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. I loved it when our kids were little. You would open it up, you would talk about it, and you'd see their eyes light up and their mouth open. That was just Emma, let alone anybody else. And it was just so neat as we spent time in Narnia, just watching everybody follow the story. And by far and away, I think the best part of the series, in the Narnia series, is the opening book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is a brief synopsis of what takes place in the book. In the first of the Chronicles of Narnia, young children go through the back of a wardrobe and enter into a whole new world, the world of Narnia. But that world is enslaved under a spell of a witch. It is the middle of winter, and as the book says, it is always winter and never Christmas. But rumor has it that Aslan, the great king from far beyond, is coming, and spring is beginning to burst forth. Aslan finally does come, but one of the children betrays the group for a piece of Turkish delight and comes under the dominion of the witch. Aslan, to free the boy, gives himself to the witch who gleefully kills Aslan on a great stone table. Of course, the children are horrified as they see their beloved Aslan being killed. But when they go back the next day to find the body, it is gone. They approach the hill and see the altar where Aslan was slaughtered. And they're mystified and confused because all they see is that there is a big crack in the stone table. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed. For a moment, they couldn't see the most important thing. And then, they did. The stone table was indeed broken into two pieces from end to end. But there was no Aslan. Oh, cried the two girls rushing to the table. It's just too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, 
cried a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They turned around and there, shining larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan. Oh, Aslan, cried both of the children, staring up at him as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, said Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? He says. Oh, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him in kisses. And then Susan asked, as they sat with Aslan, But what does it all mean? But what does it all mean? I submit to you there is no more important question that could have been asked in that moment other than, but what does it all mean? See, all the way through the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote the whole series to illustrate the personal work of Jesus Christ. Aslan is Jesus. And when it comes then to his suffering and his death, there is no more essential question to be asking than, but what? Does it all mean? And what I love about this text that we're examining today in Mark chapter 15 is without doubt Mark wants us to understand what it all means. See, Mark, without question, wants us to see more than just the obvious here. This book is, is intense, it's detailed, it begins with a great pace. And it goes from years to months to days to hours to mere minutes. And yet when it comes to the most important part in the whole book, the death of Jesus Christ, we simply read in verse 24, and they crucified him. Four words. That's all it comes down to. And that is somewhat shocking. Surely we would have expected more knowing that this is where the book would be leading. William Lane in his wonderful gospel commentary says, death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. It wasn't long after this that the cross and crucifixion became obsolete. They banned it, believing it to be too cruel. The pagan Cicero, the Roman politician and historian, said crucifixion is the greatest, cruelest, and most hideous manner of all executions. As far as he was concerned, this is the worst. And so it would appear at some point surprising that when it comes to the very point, Mark just gives us four words, and they crucified him. And yet the reason why Mark does that is because he wants us to see more than the obvious. 
The obvious, incredible and compelling though it is that they did indeed crucify him. Mark is aware that his original audience, these Gentiles, these Romans, would be well acquainted with what that meant, would be well acquainted with the pain that would be involved in this. And he wants them and indeed us then to see beyond the obvious. He wants us to see what it all means. And so what he does is he gives us three specific sets of voices. Unexpected voices, ironic voices, and yet three sets of compelling voices that help us see as they gaze on at Jesus what it all means means. And when you see that that's what Mark's doing, this text becomes even more incredible than it was before. And here then is the first set of voices. First set of three. Number one, the voices of the soldiers. Verses 16 through 20. Look with me again. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, by the time these soldiers on this day encountered Jesus Christ, they would have encountered somebody as he walked towards them that already would have been completely disfigured. Because by the time Jesus arrives with these soldiers today, he's already been scourged. In a scourging, the victim would be stripped naked, their hands would be tied above their head, they'd often be put on a hook in effect. And then a whip would be used, a whip made of leather cords with pieces of bone or lead or glass embedded in them. And then the victim would be whipped in such a way that as the lashing started to hit their body, the glass or the lead would come into their flesh and rip it from their bodies. In Jewish custom, it would only be 40 lashes, but in Roman custom, there was no limit. So people were known to have died in this process. As lacerations were cut in their skin and their muscle tissue and indeed bone. And Josephus, the the Jewish historian, says that Jesus was whipped with scourges to the bone. Pilate knew he was innocent. Pilate knew he'd done nothing wrong, but Pilate didn't want to lose his own job. And so he tries to bluff the crowd. He's like, well, I could give you Jesus or Barabbas. He's convinced, surely they'll choose Jesus to be released. But they don't. They choose Barabbas because they hate Pilate even more. They knew what he was trying to do. So I know you keep Jesus. We'll take Barabbas. Release him. Pilate should have stopped it there and then said, he hasn't done anything wrong. But in fear for his own job, he, he effectively lets them have him. And Jesus is scourged, beaten and whipped to a pulp. And so by the time he arrives with the soldiers this day, he was already disfigured. And yet these soldiers, barbaric though they are, they haven't 
They haven't encountered him before, but they haven't finished with him now. Because this guy was meant to be a king. As he arrives to them, he's meant to be a king, but he doesn't look like a king to them. He appears powerless and weak and helpless and humiliated. In this moment, he was nowhere near the image of a king that they'd be expecting. He was in no way the triumphant and powerful ruler that they would be expecting this supposed king to be. And so they pull him into the headquarters and they begin to mock him. They first of all call the whole battalion, everybody that is on duty that day. They all come and gather around this pathetic excuse for a king. And they take off his clothes and clothe him in a purple coat. Purple was always the sign of royalty. It still is to this day. And so they mockingly clothe him in a purple coat. And they make a crown of thorns and they ram it into his head. And they begin to strike him and spit on him and mock him all along, saluting him and hail him. Look, the king of the Jews! Hail him! And they start bowing down in homage to him, mocking him in the believed king that he seems to be. And yet what's ironic in a compelling way throughout this whole story is that they were right. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king. One writer describes this section as the gospel according to Jesus' enemies. These enemies unknowingly are proclaiming a profound and accurate truth in this moment. Because this was the king of the Jews. He was the one who had already displayed an authority over demons. As demons manifest themselves in front of him, he released them from people's bodies, demanding that they go. This was the king that said to the waters to be still in a moment, in a storm, and the nature was calm. He's the one that divided bread and fish to the 5,000 and then to the 4,000. He's the one that healed to the sick. Whatever they brought to him, he healed them. He's the one that even raised people from the dead. He was the king of the Jews. This was a king from another realm. And he was without doubt going to triumph. And he was without doubt going to reign. But that triumph and reign would come through weakness and suffering, and through giving his life as a ransom for many. That which he's already always said he would do. And so how ironic as they mocked him as the king, as they bowed down in homage to them. In this moment, they're actually taking part in his coronation. Because this is the king. Not just the king of the Jews, but indeed the king of all. The one to whom one day every knee will bow from every tribe and language and nation, realizing that he is the king. And so the first set of compelling voices we hear are these soldiers. They're seeking to mock the Savior in this moment, but what they actually declare is the truth. Hail! 
the king of the Jews. And yes, he is. But they're not the only voices we hear. We also hear, number two, the voices of the crowd, the chief priests, and the scribes. See, after Jesus was beaten further and mocked by the soldiers, they then led him out to crucify him. It would appear that as he made his way to Calvary, a place that you would never return from, a place where you would go to die, it would appear that as he made his way out to Calvary, the holding of the cross became too much for him. Not least through all the scourging, his body would have been made so weak that the cross hit the ground, at which point a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, was compelled and asked to carry the cross for Jesus. Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. We later on discover in the book of Romans that Simon of Cyrene, along with his wife and along with Alexander and Rufus, it would appear that they go on to become Christians. They go on to become followers of Jesus Christ himself. And yet in this moment, Alexander and Cyrene and Rufus are just mere passers-by. And yet they're brought into the unfolding story. And when Alexander drops off the cross at Calvary, with sorry, Simon of Cyrene, drops off the cross at Calvary, they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh was basically an anesthetic. It was designed to make it somewhat a little easier on the victim. But Jesus knew that even now he was there to serve. He knew that even now he didn't know what would be asked of him, what would be needed of him, who might communicate to him from either side of the cross. He knew he needed his wits around him, so he refused it. And then they crucified him. And as Jesus hangs in pain, First of all comes the mockery of the crowd. This is 29 and 30. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. People are literally walking past and just shouting out mocking insult right at him. You know, the roots of this mockery finds its home earlier in the gospel where Jesus himself talks of his body as the temple. He says a temple that would be destroyed, namely his body, would then be raised back up in just three days. And when Jesus does that, talking about his body as the temple, he's saying something truly profound. See, the temple for hundreds and hundreds of years was the place where God dwelt and where, where he would be revealed and known. The temple would be the place then where God would meet with mankind. And the temple would be the place where mankind would come and offer sacrifices to the Lord so that they may be forgiven of their sins through the blood sacrifice. And Jesus' point all along was that he was the fulfillment of the temple. It was him. The temple always pointed in all of its practices to him. And yet the crowds on that day and indeed this day just don't 
get it. And so they begin to mock him. Calvary was just outside of Jerusalem. They would have Jesus on one side, and on the other side would be the temple in its majesty and splendor. And they're looking at Jesus saying, Hey, the temple looks all right to me. You seem to say that we knock this down and in three days you'll build it up. Look at you. You are pathetic. They simply had no idea that he wasn't talking about that temple. He's talking about the temple which is his body. He was the fulfillment of the temple. And that's the irony. As once again the crowd mock him, they actually reveal a truth. Because it was in Jesus that the fullness of God is revealed and made known. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was through Jesus Christ himself in his body that he would truly reveal who God really is. And it would be Jesus Christ as he hangs upon a cross that would die as the true sacrificial lamb to make full access to God open to whosoever will. And so as Jesus breathes his last, we see in verse 38 that at that moment, the curtain temple was torn in two. This big, thick temple curtain that you simply couldn't go through, otherwise God would strike you down in his holiness. Once a year, the great high priest would go beyond that curtain in trepidation to offer sacrifices for the entire nation. And yet as Jesus Christ, the true temple, hangs upon a cross and cries out, it is finished, and breathes his last. The temple curtain in that moment is torn in two, not bottom to top, but top to bottom. Coming down from the Father himself, helping us all see, he's done it all for you. The way to the Holy of Holies is now open to you. Through faith in the true sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ himself, the one who the temple always pointed to. So this crowd mock him in this moment. Look at you. You are pathetic. The temple's still standing. When in reality, they're declaring a profound truth. The temple is being broken in this moment. And three days later, it will be built again when he rises again. The crowd mock. And then comes the mockery of the chief priests and the scribes, verses 31 32. It says, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and Believe. I trust you hear in their tone the mockery and scandal that they are seeking to put onto the Savior in this moment. If you're God's Savior, if you're the appointed Messiah, then come down. If you're Him, if you're truly Him, then come now, save yourself, show us that you are Him, prove it, and then we'll believe. Come on, come down. You're not going to come down, are you? Look at him. He's not going to come down. How pathetic he is, for he saved others, but he cannot save himself. They're going back and forth between them, laughing and giggling. Look at him. He can save everyone else, but apparently he can't save himself. 
And once again, then, in their irony and in their scorn, they are declaring a profound and compelling and ironic truth. For he saved others, and therefore he cannot save himself. True. That's exactly right. They're his enemies. But they're declaring the truth to us. Donald English writes, What they taunt him for not doing, saving himself, is precisely so because he is doing what they ridicule, namely, saving others. And he could not do both. He couldn't. If he was truly going to save others, then in this moment, he can't save himself. If he's truly going to take on the punishment that we deserve in this moment for us to be saved, he cannot save himself. True. And yet, my friends, how tempting it must have been for him in this moment to save himself. See, in this moment, Jesus is experiencing extreme ridicule and mockery. If you've ever experienced anything like that, you will know how tempting it is to justify yourself, is it not? When he's on the cross, he could, in this moment, call down a myriad of angels to release him from the cross and to wipe this congregation out. The angels are already on the edge of their seats wanting to rescue him and help him. They're standing there in disbelief. Call us and we're there. How tempting it must have been to call him. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the one that said, let there be light and there was light. Let there be water and there was water. How tempting it must have been for there to be a let there be in this moment. Could have done it. How tempting it must have been, given the mockery and slander he is receiving in this moment. How tempting it must have been, given the extreme physical pain he was experiencing in this moment, which is why it became an outlawed form of execution. Yet, more than anything, more than both of those things, how tempting it must have been, given the extreme suffering of soul he was without doubt experiencing in this moment. Which is what Mark draws so much of our attention to. See, we are informed in this text that at noon there was a great darkness that covered the land. Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. He's already been hanging there for three hours. At 12 o'clock midday, A great darkness then starts to come down and cover the land. Well, that's not normal, is it? It doesn't get dark at 12 o'clock. But this darkness that went on to cover the land for the next three hours was atmospheric confirmation, pointing to the reality that Jesus in this moment was indeed experiencing the judgment of God's wrath for our sins. It became dark in and around Calvary because in this moment he was being crushed for our iniquities. 
In this moment, he was being wounded for our transgressions. And you will note that up until now, Jesus hasn't said anything. He hasn't actually said anything for some time. He doesn't resist or protest when he was arrested. He doesn't resist or protest when he's falsely accused. He doesn't resist or protest when he is beaten or crucified. But now in this moment, he cannot remain silent any longer. In Mark chapter 1, we see the Father lacking his silence. In Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus being baptized, and as he comes out of the water, it's like God breaks in from the heavens, the Father himself, and says, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He does it later on in the Gospel during the Transfiguration. and says, This is my Son, listen to him. And now this is Jesus' turn. He just cannot contain himself any longer. And yet his cry is full of anguish. As he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? You see, Jesus in this moment is experiencing a suffering of horrific proportions. A suffering that is unimaginable and horror-filled and heartbreakingly overwhelming. And as we hit these words then, we are on holy ground. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken? Richard Allen Bodie says it this way. He says, The Bible has its corridors of mystery that refuse to yield their secrets to anyone, even those brilliant theologians. But nowhere in all the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness than this tortured cry from the lips of our dying Savior. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And this awesome, haunting protest, screamed into the darkened heavens, brings us to the heart of the atonement. Listen. Here is the crucifixion within the crucifixion. Wayne Grudem then responds. says, Jesus, in his human nature knew he would have to bear our sins, to suffer and to die. But in his human consciousness, he probably did not know how long this suffering would take. To bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of souls. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute or two or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin? Yet more of the wrath to come? Hour after hour it went on. 
The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus wave after wave after wave. And so after three long hours of darkness covering the land, Jesus cannot contain himself anymore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just last night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus saw this moment. He knew what was coming. He saw the cup of God's God's wrath that he was going to have to drink. And it says that in that moment, he staggered. He started to sweat drops of blood and he literally staggered and fell to the floor in the garden. And it's as if in this moment, though he is hanging to the cross, he is staggering again. At the weight of our sin. R.C. Sproul says this cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It bursts forth in a moment of unparalleled pain and it is the scream of the damned. And so was there physical pain? Yes. It was horrendous. But the primary pain was not physical. The primary pain was relational. As he who knew no sin became sin for us. And in the midst of bearing that sin, the Father, who Jesus has known from all eternity began, turns his face away from him. And Jesus is overwhelmed. And he staggers. And so would it have been tempting? Tempting as the crowd mock? Look at you, pathetic individual. You save others, you can't save yourself. Would it have been tempting in that moment for him to call down a myriad of angels to release him? Of course it would. Given the mockery, given the physical pain, but more even than that, the relational pain as the father turns his face away. And yet he doesn't. He stays on the cross. Why? For us. He stays for you. And he stays for me. As the hymn writer says, Was it the nails, O Saviour, that held thee to the tree? Nay. It was thy love. Thy wondrous love. Thy love for thee. And so why did he stay? For you. And for me. And so how ironic. God uses the voice of the Savior's enemies to proclaim the glory and uniqueness of his son's saving death. He cannot save himself if he's going to save us. And yet he stays there for us. And then we hear one more voice, one final voice, one unexpected voice, a most surprising voice. And it's the voice of the centurion. See, this whole scene begins in verse 16 with a battalion of Roman soldiers 
torturing and mocking Jesus, doesn't it? The entire battalion are there. Each and every individual is there in this moment, beating Jesus, mocking Jesus, spitting on Jesus. And now as the story concludes in verse 39, we hear the voice of one of those individuals above everybody. The voice of a Roman centurion. As he says this, verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so once again, how ironic. The centurion would have been numbered just a few hours earlier among Jesus' torturers, among his mockers and beaters. And yet now, having beheld the death of Jesus Christ, he declares him as the Son of God. And how ironic then that the first person to declare Jesus Christ as the Son of God all the way through this gospel is not a religious leader as you would expect it to be. Not a disciple as surely it should have been. But a Gentile Roman soldier. Right at the start of this gospel, we're introduced to the book. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No one has declared him as the Son of God all the way through the gospel. They understand he's the Christ, but they just don't get it. And then as Jesus dies in front of their eyes, it's a Gentile Roman soldier whose eyes are first opened. And he declares, truly, this man was the Son of God. And once again, in irony, we see the voice, not of a disciple or religious leader, but a Gentile declaring profound truth to us. Because he was right. Truly, this man was the Son of God. This was him, the one who took on flesh, who came as the king of all, and who then gave his life away as a ransom for many. And then, as the sun begins to set on the scene at Calvary, Jesus breathes his last, and the voices begin to fade away. And yet as Mark writes this gospel out onto the papyri, I believe there's one voice that he's always been keen to hear from. One voice that this is always designed to encounter. And that's your voice. Yours. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is what Paul tells us in Romans 10 verse 9. He says, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And my friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to be saved. See, the Bible's clear that God made us He was the one that made us. He was the one that gave us life, that even now sustains us. 
And He made us to find our identity and joy and purpose in Him. He made us to be with Him. And yet the Bible says that each and every one of us has gone astray. We've all run away from Him. We don't want to follow Him. I mean, He can, you know, hang out with us now and again, but I don't want to follow Him. I don't want Him to be my King. And that's what sin is all about. Sin is a rejection of God and the way He's called us to live. And because of that, we are an object of his holy and righteous anger. And when we stand before him on that last day, we will be an object of his wrath for all eternity. And yet God in his grace, out of love, gave us a way of escaping that. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God in his grace, the Father sent his Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told and made a way that if you put your faith in him, then on the cross he will have atoned for your sin. He was the sinless sacrifice. He was the perfect one. He lived the life that you never lived. And God so loved the world then that he gave him as the greatest gift mankind has ever had. Saying all along, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning you confess with your mouth, your voice says, He is the King. I believe He is God and He is the King. And you believe in your heart that He rose from the dead, meaning that He died in your place, and that just as it was written, three days later He rose again and is coming back for you. And if you confess him as king and you believe in your heart that he died for you and rose again, then you will be saved. Paul tells us, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So my friends, if you're here today and you've never done that, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never entrusted your life to him, then call on his name today and you will be saved. Even as you sit there, as we begin to close out the meeting, just in your mind, say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I want you to be my king. And I believe you died for me. And in doing that, you will be saved. You know, there's been much irony in this chapter. And maybe the irony for you today is that you've just come along because it's baby dedications. Or you've just come along because your friend invited you. Or you've just come along because you saw the sign outside. And yet in sweet irony, maybe God knew you were coming along. And he designed this day for you. Because this is the day he wants to save you. Call on his name. Call on his name and you will be saved. And my friends, if you're here today and you are a believer, then live in the good of all that you've seen. As you've gazed afresh today at Calvary through the ironic and unexpected voices of the soldiers and the crowd and the chief priests, live in the good of what you've seen. For was it the nails, O Savior, that held thee to the tree? Nay. It was thy love. Thy wondrous love, thy love for thee. And so may he always then be the constant confession of our hearts. Amen. But what a king and what a savior.
the Son of God in our place. Let's pray. Oh Lord, these verses are worthy of an angel's tongue. Because when we gather around them, we're on holy ground, Lord, and we recognize that. Oh Lord, I do pray then, would you continue to speak to people's hearts through these verses. Open our blind eyes like you did that of the centurion. That we may all behold that you are the king. And that you are the Savior. And that you are God. And may we all then entrust our lives to you. As our King and our Savior. As we see you for who you are. King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen.